Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Spies. Welcome to On Her Game. I've known Talisha Harden for some time. I followed her career when she was in Rugby Sevens and then in Rugby League. Talisha always struck me as this incredibly impressive woman, an absolute weapon on the field, but so articulate, warm and easygoing off it. I've always had this inkling that there was more to Talisha's story. I've been wanting to talk more about her journey, but have never had the chance. Till now. What a journey it has been. From humble beginnings in Woodridge, in Brisbane's Logan region, to travelling all around the world, representing Australia in no fewer than three sports. She's at the top of her game now as a Jillaroo and Brisbane Bronco in the NRLW. Yet can you believe it wasn't sport she was particularly good at at school? And instead, she confesses she had her nose deep into books and was a part of the school band. She also struggled speaking, and her speech impediment led her to speech therapy and her other professional path, starting throughout her athletic career to be a speech pathologist today. A proud Indigenous woman, she continually gives back to her community and people and is an incredible role model to all little girls and boys. It's been a fascinating journey, one with massive challenges along the way, but it all began as a happy little Talisha growing up in Brisbane. I was a bit of a mischief kid as uh, mum and dad will kind of confirm. Uh, but no, for me, um, I grew up on the south side of Brisbane uh, in, I guess, Logan and more specifically Woodridge. Uh, that's where I'm from and where I was where I was raised. I still live um, in the community as well. So for me, yeah, it was just a childhood spent playing in the streets, you know, enjoying myself. And I had lots of friends, lots of uh, family close by. So yeah, I just had had such a good childhood. Um. I want to talk because obviously you're a speech pathologist as well and do speech therapy for so many little kids. Um, But can you tell me you, I didn't realise this, but you had a speech problem when you were little as well. I did, yeah. I was um, one of those little ones who had kind of recurrent uh, middle ear infections. So all through growing up, um, had middle ear infections, had a a lazy eye as well. So I had to have that corrected when I was a bit younger, Um, had the tonsils and the adenoids out quite young. Um, But because of that, I got to primary school and uh, was was a bit behind with all my speaking and a little bit of my understanding as well. So um, we actually didn't have a speech pathologist at my primary school at the time. So um, I actually got put in the ESL unit, the English as a second language unit, um, and a, uh, an Aboriginal um, lady, teacher aide, um, Annie Wendy, Miss Wendy, or I used to call her, she took me under her wing and, um, yeah, I guess gave me some speech um, homework mm. and things like that to do, but that kind of ignited the fire in me to want to be a speechy when I was older. Because one of the things that first struck me when we first met was just how beautifully you spoke and how articulate you are and your tone of voice, the way you speak, and people will realise this on this podcast, which is a perfect medium for you. So it was so interesting learning that you had these problems when when you were growing up. And a lot of people don't realise that, um, and did they realise actually when they, when you were little, that you had a speech, that you were having these ear problems. A lot of people don't realise that the ears affect like the speech and and everything. And for a long time, people can just think, oh, she's just taking her time. She's just a slow learner. Was that the case for you? Yeah, definitely. And I was always kind of a, not a, not an ill child or not a sick child, but I, you know, around um, summer and around those swimming seasons, um, often I spent a lot of time inside because swimming and exposure to that moisture, it would just oh, mm. wreak havoc with my ears. So, um, you know, and I was a really chatty kid, a really talkative kid, but I didn't realise that what was kind of coming out <laughs> and what I was communicating wasn't what other people were hearing. In my head, yeah. I was like, oh, you know, I'm talking, communicating well. And um, obviously the the listeners or my communication partners were kind of like, what's this kid saying? So, um, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't until I got to primary school um, and obviously had um, you know, a lot of different um, exposure and support services and things like that, that um, I got the that little bit of extra help to, I guess, help me succeed in that curriculum-based environment, um, which is so important. So yeah, had that help, which was nice. And I love, we're going to talk about that a little bit later as well, but I love how now that's inspired you in your profession as well, that experience. Um, can you tell me, were you good at sport growing up? I wasn't. No, I wasn't. I really wasn't. Uh, again, probably because of those those middle ear infections. I was a clumsy kid, had big feet, um, obviously had those those ear infections, that history of um, 
you know, uh, being quite sick a lot. So year one and two, I actually missed a lot of school um, because mm. I was having, um, you know, tonsillitis, ear infections, all those different bits and pieces. Um, so I couldn't catch a ball probably until like year three, year four. Um, was never the fastest, never the fittest, never the most <laughs> agile. Um, tried really, really hard, like loved it. And then kind of year five, year six, things just clicked and I started to kind of connect my mind with my body a little bit better. Um, Dad used to spend hours and hours and hours and hours with me in the backyard just trying to get me to catch a ball. And I finally did. And um, I'm sure I caused Nan many headaches. I used to just have a ball um, and a tennis racket. I used to just hit a ball with my tennis racket against the back of the house, the back of her house at the time, just trying to learn how to hit it and how to wow. how to hit it twice. Basically, I couldn't hit anything. Um, but yeah, like I said, year five, it just kind of clicked. Um, it's so interesting. Yeah, Because yeah. we get athletes on here all the time and they talk about just being so into sport when they were little and obviously naturally gifted. And you, I mean, you'd look at your resume and everything you've done in the game and look what you're doing now and you'd think you'd be that naturally gifted from an early age as well. Do you think it was the middle ear infections that affected probably your balance or do you think it was a matter of, like you said, just that practice and practice and practice? I think it was probably a bit of both. It was definitely the ears at the start. And then I think um, that practice, practice, practice really, really helped. Um, you know, having dad, having um, cousins, having fa- friends and family um, to play with all the time just helped me build up those different skills. Um, my best mate actually lived next door. Um, she lived next door for about oh, 15, 16 years and she was one of seven kids. So she was my age and we had lots of um, her brothers and sisters around. So I had good role models to learn off too. Like we used to take down the the edges of our fence and leave the middle and play tennis over the middle of the fence. Oh, um, cool. And we'd practice jumping over it. Like we'd do everything. We'd set up a <laughs> volleyball net in the backyard. Like it was really, really cool. So yeah, just that exposure to different sports and lots and lots of practice. That's awesome. What about role models? Did you look up to female sports athletes or anyone in particular? Um, oh, it was so funny because during... I guess my time as a as a youngster, I was quite a um, I guess what you'd call like quite a book nerd. So um, I didn't I didn't really watch too much sport growing up. Like I think for me the big catalyst was obviously the two thousand um, Olympics. Mm. Kathy Freeman, you know, seeing her win, and I was like, whoa, like this is amazing. But before then, um, yeah, I was I was honestly just into my books, into my reading. Um, Mum and I, our special treat, um, we didn't have a car at the time when I was quite young. So our special treat, we used to walk to the local library um, and I could spend two or three hours there in an afternoon. I got to pick all the books that I wanted and and read them. Um, you know, there wasn't the internet back then. I'm, I feel like yeah. I'm talking 30 years ago, but it was actually not <laughs> even that. I'm hearing It's all good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I used to just sit down and I was just, I loved books and I still do. So that Great. was kind of my thing growing up was um, reading books in my school holidays. If I wasn't playing outside, I was inside reading books. Um, so it's, yeah, I've definitely got a love of literacy. And you're in a brass band as well. I was, yeah, I was... <laughs> So this random. is not the Talisha Harden I thought I uh, was going to get growing up, right? No, no. I was, yeah, a bit of a random kid now that I think about it. But yeah, I played, <laughs> um, I had uh, a couple of mates um, from primary school. We're a very multicultural school. So mm. um, kids from all different backgrounds. And I actually had um, a few friends um, who played in the school band. And I thought, oh, that's cool. I want to do that. That's awesome. So I learned how to play, like most kids, the recorder, you know, and music. Oh, yeah. Learn I how my to, kids never learn how to play the recorder. Hot cross buns on the recorder. Um, <laughs> yeah. Loved that. And then um, got into the violin for a little bit and then uh, joined a brass band, Beanley Brass Band, um, and started to learn the tenor horn, which was something quite different. Wow. So, yeah. Cool. Anzac Day so marches. So interesting. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's not the Talisha Harden, I thought we were going to get, but I love it. It's really, really interesting. You mentioned that multicultural area that you grew up in. Can you just set the scene for us? What was What is Woodridge like? Yeah, Woodridge is really interesting. If you if you probably Googled Woodridge right now, um, the I guess the things that you'd see, the things that would pop up on the internet probably aren't the best from the outside in. Like um, I think when most people think of Logan, they think of uh, crime, they think of, um, you know, low socioeconomic area, they think of... Um, I guess um, Bogans, Logan Bogan is the term that's typically associated with with Logan. But from the inside out, it's completely different. Um, Real, really 
great community to be a part of where, you know, you know your neighbours, you know everyone in your street. You know, it's something that it makes your heart full when, you, when you're driving down mm. the street now as an adult and you see people out playing, enjoying the parks, running around, community markets, little things like that. And I think that's what people miss, you know, when you stereotypically think of, of what Logan might be like. But I'm so proud to be from that community and proud to have grown up in Woodridge. And like I said, just multicultural, so many different cultures, people of ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, whatever it might be. Yeah, definitely made me the person I am today growing up in that area. Do you get frustrated sometimes when people give bat Logan a bad name and they don't see all the, that great stuff that goes on from the inside? I, I do now, definitely. Like I, I went through that period, I think in your early teens and your late teens where, you know, someone asks where you're from and you get that little bit anxious because you know that, you know, people obviously look down on the community that you might live in. So I'd say, oh, I'm from, like I live on the south side of Brisbane. Oh, where? Logan. And then I'm like, oh, Woodridge. And then I thought, why am I doing that? Like, I'm proud of who I am. You know, I'm proud of where I come from. Um, And I'm so proud now. Like, um, and I think that's the thing is, you know, you just have to learn to be comfortable with who you are. And obviously as a teenager, you know, you might not be, you know, you're meeting people of all different communities and different backgrounds to yourself. So um, yeah, it took me a while to become comfortable with that. But once I am, like, I think I I just became really comfortable um, mm. and, yeah, love it. Owned your own story in a way. That's it, yeah, definitely. Do you remember the first time you kind of went outside of Woodridge? I'm not saying you never went outside of Woodridge, especially given what you were doing in sport, but did you first notice that the first time you stepped out of Woodridge and you realised that there's an equality outside of where you are? Yeah, I think um, for me, um, when I first started it at university, I was shell-shocked because, not because of anything in particular, but just because it was so different to the world that that I knew, um, you know, and even just seeing, um, I guess, how different it was to my, my home community. It was such a culture shock for me and, I, and I'm from an urban area, you know, in Brisbane as well. Um, but again, it was an opportunity for me to learn more, to broaden my worldview in a sense, and I'm so grateful for having had that experience and that bit of that bit of almost culture shock. Um, mm. What in particular gave you a culture shock? Oh, I think um, you know. I'll take it back to the cafes and stuff like that. Like you know, <laughs> I just I, there's like seven cafes at UQ, or probably more. Um, and you know, there's all different things, and I just I never imagined that it's like a small town in you know in a mm. university and things like that. Um, but even um, I was the only uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person in my in my course, even so, um, you know. And speech pathologists—I don't know if you've heard this yet, but speech speeches are renowned for the kind of their um, their, it's a joke, like their high heels and um, how well dressed they are. And I think I rocked <laughs> up to my first um, my first lecture in like trackies and a thing, and I went, "Whoa!" Like, okay, I need to um, I need to think about my wardrobe a bit more. But um, no, it's a it's a well known kind of uh, running joke in the UQ um, community for sure like yeah, the speeches are very well dressed and immaculately presented and sometimes I'd rock up straight after training and just be in shorts and a, <laughs> like a jumper and things like that and I swear oh. people thought I was in a HBE course or like an exercise physiology course and I was like no I'm studying speech and they were like oh okay cool <laughs> I love it I had to I learned I learned how to walk mm. in that world and um you know it's something that I'm proud of doing like you know it's a big step I think to come from your community and learn to fit in with another one so yeah I was happy that I've had that experience for sure. You're a proud Indigenous woman what was your relationship like with your culture and your family? Yeah I had a I guess an interesting start to to life Um, I'm actually adopted within my own family. So, you know, you probably need a, like an infographic with some, um, <laughs> some links here, Sam, for the, um, for anyone listening, but, uh, no, like I'm, I guess I'm adopted within my own family. So, uh, my birth parents, um, gave me to, uh, my birth mum's sister. So I was raised, um, raised by her and her, her husband, who I call dad, um, and mum. And then I also call my birth mum auntie and then my biological dad, dad. So yeah, there's a lot of different uh, <laughs> elements to, I guess, growing up. Um, but I grew up with, um, obviously, the, the parents who raised me. Um, but from as far back as I can remember, I don't ever not remember being um, Indigenous. I've always known it from the minute I can remember anything. I've always known um, who my people were, who my dad's side of the family were, I guess, where um, my people come from. Um, even if I didn't know the specifics of everything um, in terms of 
cultural connection and mm. country and all that, all those specific things. I knew exactly where I was. Like I knew I was Indigenous. Um, and I think for me, that was really, that was really awesome to know that from a young age. Um, and my parents are quite um, fair skin as well. So it wasn't until I got to primary school and, uh, you know, kids are like, oh, where, where are you from? And I said, oh, you know, I'm Trisha Ananda, I'm Indigenous. Um, and um, they were like, oh, where's that? And I said, I don't know, but I, like, I know I'm, <laughs> you know, I know I'm Indigenous. And then, but having that conversation sparked, inspired me as a young person to learn more about my culture. So I would ask mum about different things. I would ask my um my family about different things. I did my own research, like back to sitting in those libraries. Like I remember looking at some of the Torres Strait Islander and Aboriginal artifacts and um, some of the history. And, you know, I would sit there and, and read about it and learn about it. And there wasn't much, there wasn't much in the library. It was actually, all that stuff was actually in the, like that more adult section. And I think I was like eight or nine, but I was always looking for different things and wanting to connect. Cool. So you've always had that strong connection with your culture, it seems. Yeah, definitely. Even Even though I didn't grow up you know, on the islands or on country, I've always known who I am, where I'm from, and I've always been proud of that. And then for me along my way, um, I've met people who have imparted their knowledge and given me more information along the way, um, whether that be uh, people from Brisbane, people from uh, in rugby league circles. Mm. Um, I've done my own research. I've talked to elders, um, you know, at different events and things like that. So I've always had... Um, that will to learn and want to learn more um, and then obviously connecting more to my my own specific cultural heritage so where I'm where I'm from especially up in the Torres Strait that's why I'm so glad that I've you know I've been there been able to go back and and been there a few times um, you know got to learn and and sit down and eat you know eat with my aunties and um, learn more and yeah you just feel that spiritual connection to to where you're from when you go back. And um, I think there was always that piece missing though. So when I was growing up, like having not been to the islands and, you know, wanting to go there, mum, how do we get there? Like, can we just go? And it's, you know, it's not just a quick little two hour drive. Like, you know, there's a couple of planes and a ferry to to get to where we're from. So, um, but yeah, to actually go back and experience that was something, I think it helped kind of, feel that missing missing piece of the puzzle and obviously I'd love to go and live up live up there but um yeah just every all my commitments are, are down life here at the moment yeah life <laughs> yeah what do you love the most about being an indigenous woman i think just the sense of the sense of community um you know and also just um i'm it's it's funny i'm not a very i guess you wouldn't call me a typically religious person but i think as a Indigenous person, um, this is my opinion, definitely, is that having something to believe in beyond the here and now and having a, having a connection to something beyond the here and now, so ancestors, um, stories, um, just being able to feel something beyond the here and now and you can feel it, like you can actually feel it and when you meet someone who's Aboriginal or Torres Strait you, you just know, like you, you've got <laughs> that like you can just feel it. It's such a, it's so hard to explain. Yeah, it's really, really spiritual. And, um, you know, I just, I love that feeling of being connected to something deeper than what you can see, touch and feel here. So mm. I don't know how to explain. It probably sounds no, a bit I think you're but explaining, I, no, yeah. I think you're explaining that really beautifully and yeah. really, really well. Let's talk about sport. If you're going from that girl who didn't have much hand and eye coordination and now you've represented Australia in three sports, that's amazing. But how did you start with the first sport? How did you get into volleyball? How did it all start? Um, I started high school. Um, at the time, it was, again, another really multicultural school. Um, not too many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids. Um, but at the same time, I was just kind of ready to go to high school. Like, I didn't think about sport too much. Like, I was okay at sport. I actually did 10-pin mm. bowling on the weekends. That was my thing. <laughs> so, I did... I love you, Talisha. You're full of surprises. Know, That's it's awesome. It's so random. <laughs> it's, it's so great. But no one goes 10-pin bowling with me anymore because I get really competitive. <laughs> yes. So um, That's you. We're, we're actually... Sorry, funny story segue. We're at a Jillaroo, <laughs> we were at a Jillaroo's camp um, and... Um, folksy, um, bless his heart, Steve folks. Folks. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was the coach at the time and, um, I was in a moon boot for this camp and, um, 
we, we, ended up, we went out bowling for the team thing and I think I got like four strikes in a row. And um, folks, he was <laughs> With like, the moon boot. Yeah, he's like, you don't need that moon boot. Like that's um, thing. But yeah, and the girls were like, what is that? Like, how do you, how, how can you bowl? And they were laughing too because I did the full like, you know, like the leg behind with the, the answer the phone. I used to do bowling tutorials like and tutoring and things like that. So I was actually wow. into bowling at the time. Um, and then randomly. Was that your first sport, bowling? That was it. Yeah, I'd probably say bowling was my first kind of competitive cool. sport. Loved it. Um, and yeah, I just, I don't know, I was in HPE one day and um, my teacher at the time, Mr. Cotton, he's a legend. He said, oh, you've, you're quite tall and you've got long arms and um, you look like a bit of an athlete. And I said, oh, not really. Like, and he said, come and play, come and try volleyball. And I, I'd actually already missed the first six months of training. So um, this was about June, July when, because um, there were volleyball trials earlier in the year. And I went, oh, no, that's not for me. Like, I'm not, that's not going to be me. And then Mr. Cotton was like looking for um, a middle blocker. And he said, oh, just come to training and give it a go. And I gave it a go and loved it. Like, just absolutely loved it. And was good straight away? Oh, I wouldn't say good, but because I was actually the same height now as I was probably like in year eight. So right. they, okay. and I had a, my arm span is actually a lot longer than my body. So yeah, you've got a big wingspan, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. So they, um, they thought I was going to grow a lot. So, um, much to their surprise, I didn't, um, <laughs> still quite short now, but, um, I could, I had a pretty good vertical jump. Um, so I just kind of made do and made some really good mates and loved it and then progressed through the ranks really quite quickly. Like I just, um, yeah, loved it. Yeah. How far did you go? And this is a brag fest. You can, you can oh, just tell me because um, I know you're quite humble, but tell me, how far did you get? Uh, I played, so I played for the Australian senior women's team. Um, in volleyball or beach volleyball? Uh, in volleyball. Indoor volleyball. Yeah, yeah. indoor volleyball. Um, but then did dabble in a bit of beach volleyball because we, uh, with our Queensland Academy of Sport schedule, summer was beach and indoor was winter. Um, and I actually, yeah, I got to pair up with um, Taliqua a fair bit. Um, Yay, Taliqua Clancy. Taliqua Clancy and junior um, junior sport. So episode 15 of On Her Game Somewhere, you can catch up on Talika's story. But that's cool. I didn't realise that you two were so close. And But how long that friendship had gone on so ever since you were 12 or something? Yeah, we first, so um, year eight, um, T was up north and I was um, obviously in Brisbane and we uh, first saw each other at a, at a camp. There was a camp, uh, a pirates camp it's called, um, but it was a volleyball camp and we went to that and just kind of, you know, like, hey, you're like you black fella, I'm a black fella. Like this is cool because <laughs> again, weren't too many black fellas in volleyball yeah. as well. So um, just connected, and then the next year we actually got we connected straight away. But then the next year we got billeted out to the same family um, for a Queensland schoolgirls carnival. So uh, yeah, again, just best of mates. Like just yes, yeah. yeah, so like pretty much inseparable. Um, and then she was always a lot better at volleyball than me. I'll preface, like she was always so much better. Um, I, she was Batman, I was Robin. Like it was just, you know, she was she was the man. Um, but we we had such a good little combo and she played a lot of indoor too. Like she was a gun indoor player. She could have easily played college volleyball in America or gone on to play professionally in Europe somewhere making, you know, a million dollars a season. But um, she's, yeah, such a good athlete and it was now good to play. she's a silver Olympic medalist. Yeah, just casually, you know, just a bit of silver. No, she's awesome. What happened to volleyball? How did it all end and how did Rugby Sevens come into the picture? Oh, it was a, it was a very, um, I guess it, at the time it was a very expensive sport just with funding and things like that. So a lot of the times when we're going overseas and we're funding trips, um, it's coming out of your own pocket. So as an 18, 19-year-old, like it's, it's a lot of money. Um, and before that, mum and dad had obviously chipped in a lot of money around trips and things, but it wasn't fair to keep asking them to do that. So yeah, trying to fund those things and do it myself was a bit hard. And then obviously the injuries associated with playing volleyball are quite high as well. Like for me, it was a lot of joint and muscle type injuries and my body was just breaking down and traveling and trying to play uh, sport and do uni. It was just kind of a bit tricky at the time. And um, I literally was just Googling one day. I was like, oh, I'd love to play bit of footy. Um, and I didn't know league or union, which one I wanted to do. Our family's quite rugby league based. Um, but I thought, oh, I'll give union a go. I knew a few of the boys from high school and primary school who played union. So gave it a go, loved it. Got a black eye on my first night. I actually ran Yay. into a pole. Like I ran into the, um, <laughs> not the goalpost, but like the, um, 
like, you know, you've got those poles where you do agility around and someone before <laughs> me had flicked it and it's fl- literally like in a movie, it's flicked up and got me straight <laughs> in the eye. I've still got the picture somewhere actually because I thought I was so deadly at the time. I took a photo and was like, black eye on my first night. Um, yes. But yeah, that was the start of it. And then... Um, <laughs> Yeah, Union and Sevens from the then on. The black sealed it for you. Yeah. I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I love it that you Googled rugby and that's how you got into it. Yeah, yeah. I um, Obviously, like, there wasn't a lot of social media around the, the women's team at the time. Um, so I didn't, I wasn't even thinking high level sport. I just thought, you know, I've done volleyball. That's been awesome. I'm just going to go down to my local club and and have some fun and enjoy it. And, and give then it you a got go. Spotted? Yeah, I was playing um, in a sevens tournament for Sunnybank Rugby Union, and we were down at a, another tournament. And someone spotted me down there, one of the coaches, and just said, "Oh, like come and do some extra training and things like that." And so I actually ended up in the Queensland team that year, not the top one, the second one. Um, and we were down in I'm going to say Sydney. Gosh, my memory is horrible. Um, but I got to play in that, which was really, really cool and loved it and then got kind of spotted again from that to progress more into, I guess, a wider type development um, Australian squad that trained out of Ballymore. Um, I was a Queensland-based squad at the time. And then, yeah, just started training, found myself in like another kind of high performance-ish environment and, yeah, loved it. Really, really enjoyed it. At this time... Rugby was, and we knew that it was going to be an Olympic sport. Am I right? You knew that at the time they had found that out? Not when I first joined that kind of wider squad. I just thought, this is cool. Like, sevens is hard, like this, but I'm getting so fit. Um, the girls are awesome. I'm making friends. I was still playing union with Sunnybank, so 15 aside. So I was just, I was loving all the connections I was making, the people I was meeting, just really enjoying sport. Um, and then it wasn't until I kind of had spent a little bit of time in that um, that squad that I was like, oh, it is, that's an Olympic sport and there's a World Cup and there's all these cool bits and pieces that go with it. You know, and at the time um, I was in the squad with like, I think so many, oh, it was amazing. There was, you know, Emily Cherry and, and Alicia Quirk, we're the same age and we're all really good mates. And then um, I met like um, a few of the older girls who were still running around like Christy Giddo and... Yeah, there was so Shani. many. Shani Williams, Shannon Parry, some really cool. awesome. That um, Cheryl Soon, who's now in America, um, she was one of the trailblazers. Bo Dela Cruz, obviously, was there. Selena Worsley, like so many amazing people to learn off. Um, and then, yeah, I was just this young kid who'd come from volleyball, just giving it a go. And um, like I said, it was just so accepted, you know. Everyone was mm. so awesome, so lovely. And yeah, just started to train with those guys a little bit. Then the program relocated to Sydney and you relocated with it. But that was a big call for you at the time, wasn't it? It was, yeah, because I actually didn't get a centralised contract at the time. I was still on the fringe, but I thought, you know what, I'm I'm still young. I'll give it a go. And I, I loved having played in that World Series event and had um, obviously not been good enough to make that World Cup team that was after that. And then thought, okay, no, I'm really still enjoying this though. Like I'll, I'll give it a crack and move down to Sydney. Moved in with a good mate of mine's uh, mum. She was also in the program as well. Not, not, not the mum, but the daughter, yeah. uh, Kobe, uh, Kobe Jane Morgan. So I lived with yep. her mum, Patty, um, cool. which was awesome on the Central Coast. So I would commute from the Central Coast to, um, to DY yeah. or to Narrabeen, sorry, where mm. the program was. Um, and was just kind of training um, a couple of times a week with the girls, still not at a contract or anything, but that was sweet. Mm. was just loving it. You just backed yourself though. That's what I love about that part of your story. You really backed yourself. Yeah, definitely. I like, just thought, why not? Like, you know, I, I deferred uh, uni and just mm-hmm. thought I'll just give it a go and see how it goes. Again, got really fit, like, you know, was was just loving playing. Um, and that was, um, that was a, I guess, a couple of years before the Olympics and things like that, and then got to the end of that year um, and just wasn't kind of, well, I guess wasn't performing, wasn't, just wasn't, you know, I guess good enough to make that that squad, which is, again, no, I've got no shame in saying that, like that, the squad was full of so many amazing athletes um, and it was so hard, like, you know, the, the hats off to all the girls who play sevens because it's a tough sport, like it's a tough sport on your body and, um, 
yeah, again, I've got no shame in saying I, I wasn't good enough. So I left the program and then actually got to play um, for the Aussie girls at Noosa that year um, when we were back up in Queensland, which was cool. So, and then just went back to play for Queensland and play for fun and just still love sevens and then jumped over into rugby league. In between, before we get to rugby league and what happened, there was a lot going on in your life, wasn't there, at that stage when you did leave rugby sevens. Your mum had a really serious accident and it, it really rocked you. Can you take me back to that time and what happened and the effect that it had on you at the time? Yeah, definitely. I um, So obviously before mum's accident, we were like, she was such a social person, best of mates. Like she'd come and watch all, all the game, all my volleyball games. I can imagine she was there. Um, you know, she had no idea what was going on, but she'd be clapping. Uh, you know, in the mm. background, just you know, such an amazing person. And then had her accident uh, at work, workplace accident, which was quite severe. She was um, working in a, I guess, a men's prison at the time. So um, tough job. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, her and her work partner at the time um, resulted quite badly. So from then on, um, just she unfortunately suffered a lot from PTSD, lots of depression, anxiety, you know, everything you can imagine. Um, but Your partner died in that incident, didn't Yeah, 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 100%. And um, it literally, I think that's why at the time I didn't quite know how to deal with it because in my head, you know, the day before, you know, she'd been this bright, bubbly person the day after and then on I just thought oh you know she'll it'll it'll come good she'll be okay like it'll snap you know and as a 21 20 year old you think oh she'll snap out of it because that's what you think at the time um and then you know three four five six months go by a year goes by and you think oh you know nothing's changed she's still quite the same and she had a lot of support a lot of therapy tried a lot of different things but still wasn't quite getting better was it almost getting getting worse in a sense so um yeah for me at the time i just i became quite angry not at her specifically but i think i was just angry at the situation i didn't quite understand it um i guess my education around mental health back then definitely wasn't what it was like at the you know, what it's like now, knowing what I know and all the education and things that go around it. So, you know, at the time, a lot of uh, my family's resources and things like that went into obviously helping mum and caring about mum and, you know, as it should have been. But there was, um, I guess, that element of, you know, how it was affecting me at the time. And um, I probably didn't um, speak up about that a lot. So I got I just became such an angry person, which is so and funny. That's so hard because you're like the most beautiful and lovely and friendly person. I find it difficult to think about an angry Talisha, but that must have been the effect that it that it had on you. Probably being so young, not knowing how to deal with such big issues and big emotions too. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think on the outside, like I'd step out the door and I'd be, I could kind of lose what had happened at home in what I was doing, whether that was uni or sport or, um, you know, when you're training so hard, you don't have kind of, you can block out a lot of what's happening at home. But as I'd finish training and kind of get in the car to go home and things like that, I'd just become so angry. And I probably wasn't a really nice person, not a nice person, sorry. I was still a nice person, but I just probably wasn't as approachable or maybe as, maybe as able to connect with dad and mum at the time because I was still so angry about everything. Um, and a lot of that anger, I think, just came from not understanding the situation. Like, again, being like, snap out of it. Like, you know, um, I've got, you know, I'm, I've got this coming up. Can you please come? Um, and, you know, mum and dad not being able to come because of this and that. And then, you know, having, um, being, ma you know, making teams or having some success. And again, you know, mum and dad, can you come? And, you know, they couldn't, obviously, because mum with her PTSD and, you know, anxiety and uh, even, you know, hallucinations and things like that just couldn't quite, yeah, crowds, couldn't difficult. crowds, all that kind of thing, loud noises, um, people being behind her and, you know, not knowing who was coming up, like a lot of those things. And But at the time I didn't understand that, you know, I'm just like, oh, she can't come. And I really celebrate the fact when she can make things and, um, you know, even the girls at Origin uh, two years ago, knew that mum was coming up and they organised like a scarf and a beanie to oh, for cool. her and things like that. So, and that's that's the difference as well as back then I didn't tell anyone about it. I kept a lot of it internalised and kind of 
you know, people would say, oh, where's your mum? And I'd say, oh, she's just at home or she's working or she can't make it. You know, I'd always make excuses because not because I was ashamed of what had happened to mum, because that's not her fault at all. It was just because I didn't quite know how to tell people. I couldn't vocalise my own emotions. Yeah, you were suffering too, weren't you? Yeah. So um, I just hid that part of myself. And actually, probably the two people I, two or three people I told first were like Quirky and um, and Chez. I remember telling them. And um, again, a lot of the rugby crew, I just started to slowly tell people and found that that was in itself quite freeing of, you know, the burden of what I thought, sorry, was the burden of what I was carrying. But yeah, I think that that it's helped a lot. And now now it's quite common, like even back then, mum didn't really want me talking about it. But now she's like, no, I like, I want you to talk about it because it's part of your journey. And you know, obviously there were some really tough years, but, um, you know, we're all, we're all in a good place and she's had high highs and she still has her low lows, but, mm. you know, she's doing a lot better, which is awesome. You did some travel in that time as well. You went to Africa and did a really incredible trip. What impact did that trip have on you? I did, yeah. And um, again, I think that's something that, that probably contributed to me coming back fresher mentally, physically, emotionally. I went to South Africa for six weeks in the year that I'd moved down to Sydney actually with with Sevens. Um, so just an opportunity came up and I thought, when when else can I go to South Africa and volunteer and, you know, help out one of the communities there? So did that for six weeks. So during the day, we actually built keyhole gardens for, uh, I guess, a remote South African school right near the uh, Kruger National Park, um, which was pretty amazing. So we would um, build with the kids and we built gardens so that they'd um, have sustainable uh, fruit and veg um, throughout the year. The kids then became, um, I guess, the the bosses of, of the gardens when they were at school. So um, it was awesome. I loved it. And then we'd play sports games in the afternoon and just run around and muck around and, you know, kick the ball and things like that. And I loved it. It was six weeks. Um, and I think for me, it just it just put things into perspective a lot, and I know that does sound cliche, but obviously being um, in a community where um, you know there's no running water and you have to uh, fill up, some of the kids would run down to get water and run back up with buckets, and um, you know there's kids there who seven, eight, nine, ten years old and know how to bricklay and know how to tile because they do it to you know earn a little bit of extra money to help. I loved it. I took so much inspiration from those kids, and I thought, oh my gosh, I my issues are non-existent compared to, you know, these kids who just smile and laugh and so happy and enjoy themselves. And again, I know like it probably sounds like, you know, lots of people say it, but it doesn't take, I think once you take yourself out of your own environment and see how, uh, again, that worldview, seeing how, you know, different communities operate and what they do. And I just thought this is amazing. Like, and I came back and, and nothing nothing, not the big, I didn't sweat the big stuff anymore. I just came back and, you know, if, if things worked out, they worked out. If they didn't, they didn't. And even Nan said that after I came back from that, that experience, that it's like my anger just kind of dissipated. Like I just, yeah, I was a much, um, much more settled person. Yeah. I love that. You came back and rugby league became part of your life. Yeah, it did. How did that transition happen? Um, randomly. So I, I came back from... South Everything's random in Delisha's life. so random. <laughs> um, came back from South Africa, was still training and just realised, I was like, oh, you know, I'm really, I'm a bit out of my depth here. Like, you know, the girls are amazing. Um, and then thought, I'll move home. I've got uni back next year. Um, was still doing sevens on the side and then got an opportunity to play in the Murray Carnival um, at the end of that year, which was really cool. So I'd met, obviously met Nikki Muller through Rugby Union and knew her and, you know, we'd known each other for ages. She said, sis, just come play Murray Carnival. And I said, what's that? Like, all right. Like, <laughs> I heard of it, but I like was like, oh, where? Like, you know, what's happening? So I had my first league tournament uh, that year. Such a great tournament, isn't it? And then in New South Wales, you have the Curry Cup as well. You do, yeah. Such a great, yeah. Yes. Um, so I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And then... um. That tournament for me was amazing. I absolutely just loved it. So, um, yeah, played in that. Happy as. Um, just Not thinking that there was going to be a professional women's rugby league competition happening at all because that wasn't even in the picture, was it, at that stage? No, no. Like, um, 
it was, yeah, it was so different. Like it was just, um, you know, I just thought I'd, yeah, just have a muck around, have a run around in the Murray Carnival with the girls and see what happens. Like it's, you know, just a chance to, you know, relax a bit. Oh, we did not relax. Like it was, (laughs) it's serious. Like anyone who's played in them carnivals knows, like you are there to win. Like (laughs) it's obviously about the community, you know, involvement and everyone getting together, but it's serious footy. Um, And we come second that year, actually we came second. So we lost. Um, But then from there, I just got scouted into that uh, Indigenous All-Stars team. Um, From there, again, wasn't expecting that. Got to play in that, loved it. And then that was kind of the start of rugby league. Mm. How soon before you were making your Gillaroo's debut from there? I think I debuted in 2015 um, and I think I moved back from Sydney in 2014. I'd have to check my, the years just blend into one. That's amazing. But it was probably, it was within a year of playing All-Stars. I got, yeah, picked by Folksy to play in the... 2015 test match, the one that got rained out at Suncorp Stadium. I don't know if you remember that. It was, um, I think it's the only time I've ever seen a representative match cancelled because it rained, it bucketed down at Suncorp Stadium on the Friday night. Um, So they cancelled our game and the men's game and replayed them on Sunday afternoon. So that was the um, Anzac Day test match. So you got to make your debut on the Sunday. Yeah, yeah, which was awesome. In the sunshine, so it was a beautiful day. Yeah, um, I was a bit of a more nimble centre back then. Debuted and then actually broke my ankle like four weeks later. So, um, and then was out for a year. So yeah. kind of went on this big high of, you know, all-stars and a Murray Carnival all-stars, making it, playing Jillaroos and then you know, I was supposed to make my Queensland debut and Ali Brigginshaw and I, Ali broke her ankle two weeks, oh, three weeks before the game and I broke mine two weeks before the game. So we, we were both, she actually came and visited me in hospital, which was quite cool <laughs> awesome. at the time, but we both broke her ankle, unfortunately. Um, that was a big injury for you though. Like it sounds, mm. break your ankle, it was fine, but it was over 1,600 days, four and a half years, wasn't it, before you made your next Gillaroos team? Yeah. What was going on in, in that time? How difficult was it to get back to the best? Oh, so, so difficult. Um, I, yeah, had, like I dislocated it and then I had um, I'd broken it in a couple of places, so needed it to be fixed. And um, I just, I think I underestimated the recovery at that time. So I thought, yep, it'll be easy. Like I'll be back in, you know, I'll be back for Origin, I thought. I was like, two weeks will be sweet. And then I think so dealing with that, I was like, oh, didn't get to make my Origin debut. That's okay. There's always next year. So I did, I had a seven, eight month recovery. Did uni at the time, was back doing uni placement and stuff like that. So was getting around uni on crutches and, you know, trying to still do a bit of this and a bit of that. And then just couldn't find any rhythm. I was probably a bit just scarred from what had happened. Um took me a long time to get myself confident and I, I wasn't as fast and probably nimble as I was before. So I couldn't really play. I couldn't play in the centers anymore. And at the time I was only about 68 kilos. So I couldn't really jump into the forwards too much as well. I played a little bit of back row, dabbled a bit at lock, but it took me, honestly, it took me about two years of playing footy for Burley um, and in the Southeast Queensland comp before I actually found my feet again, started to get a bit more confident with thing. I had a, I had another surgery on it as well because there was just so much scar tissue and things like that. So a couple of years after, I think 2017 or 18, I had the surgery, but was still playing All-Stars, still very fortunate, got to play in a couple of All-Stars games and kept doing that, kept pushing for Queensland Captain selection. Captain the Indigenous team too. Yeah, yeah. yeah, loved that. Keep, you know, such an honour. Um, kept pushing for selection, but just couldn't quite, couldn't quite get there in the end. And um, like I said, it took me almost three years before I got selected for Origin again. So I made my debut in 2018, 18, 19, 20, 20, Yeah, it was. Um, so 2018, came off the bench, but it was so funny because when um, when the coaches were announcing who the, the debutants were for that game, just informally at a session, they were like, oh, you know, um, this person, this person, this person. And they went past me and I was like, oh, and me. And they were like, what? Like they couldn't <laughs> believe that I, they just forgot because I'd been around for so long and I'd been yeah, in and out yeah. of systems and things like that. So, yeah. Did you think that you were ever going to get back into that green and gold jersey? Oh, no way. No way. I, I didn't think at all I'd get back in there. 
the the talent and just the girls coming through, the competitiveness, the way the program was heading, the success the program was having mm. as well. Like, you know, such an amazing group of girls were part of that Jillaroo system at the time. And I was trying my hardest to get in there and, you know, really trying to work on things and work on weaknesses. And um, I got to play in that Com Games, not, Com Nines, the Commonwealth Nines mm-hmm. uh, up at Redcliffe. Um, after a, I had a, that was after the 2017 World Cup as well. So there was a few girls backing up from the World Cup playing in that. So the beginning of 2018, I just tried, got myself really fit and the ankle was feeling good and, um, got selected for that. So that was kind of my way back into that Australian setup. And yeah, just from there, I just kind of having that little moment, I was like, oh, I really love this. Like I want to be a part of this. And then was still just on that fringe for a little bit um, in those Australian-based squads and things like that. And then, yeah, got selected in that 2019 Wollongong game. So stoked. Yeah, I think you're right. It was like 1,300 and something days in between. 1,632 days in between. Yeah, it's a lot. Thank you, Alicia Newton, for writing that article and working that out for me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Way, Alicia. Um, You've been involved in the NRLW right from its inception as well. You were the Roosters, Broncos, then Roosters, then Broncos. You're back with the Broncos. Um, It's at a really interesting stage, the NRLW, and I just want to get your thoughts on it because you're someone who's affected by this. It's a semi-professional setup, yet the expectation on you is a professional as well. How hard is it to have it in this semi-professional state, yet from the outside, people expect you to be fully professional all the time. And yet you're balancing families, you're balancing full-time work. You are yourself. Um, You're unable to train and have the systems in place to be at that. You are elite and you do have the high performance programs, but all year round. How difficult is this stage at the moment to be involved in a semi-professional sport? Oh, it is definitely challenging. Um, and I'd be, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't. It's definitely challenging. And I think we often talk about, you know, a lot of the, the ladies, the women who sacrifice careers, cars, opportunities at work, annual leave, all those things, you know, only less than 10 years ago. And it's tracking so well. It's, you know, it's building each and every year. But like you said, um, we're in this awkward stage now where there's so many opportunities and you want to play all of them and you you want to put your hand up for all of them, but there's things you do, you still have to sacrifice and probably for the foreseeable future, that'll still occur and, you know, it'll be um, an ongoing process. So, you know, and last year you saw it, there were girls who couldn't play in the NRL, oh, sorry, two years ago now, um, in the 2020 NRLW who couldn't play because, um, you know, we had to go into a COVID bubble so we missed out on, you know, having girls play that because of family, because of whatever it was, because um, they couldn't take time off work. And, um, you know, there's all these little factors that go into why people can and can't play. But uh, for most of us, unfortunately, we just we just get on and we, we find a way to do it. And I think that's a testament to a lot of the girls that like they, we just find a way to do it, um, you know, in five, six years time when we might not have the career or the the financial gain or the whatever it is because we've made these decisions now. Um, I know it'll all be worth it in the end, definitely. Um, and we know that, like we just want to play footy at the end of the day, but hopefully it can build quite soon where that remuneration is, um, is on path to at least be able to live that lifestyle comfortably without having to worry about the external things. Because to the NRL's credit, like COVID has affected it the last two years and has mm-hmm. slowed the progress of and the development of the NRLW um, in difficult circumstances. But you said before, like girls being unable to play um, just because of that, that ask of being a semi-professional athlete. Is there a concern there that, you know, you might get stuck and the competition might get stuck in this semi-professional state because we're going to lose a lot of of women to the game because they can't keep making those endless sacrifices with work and time and finance and family and everything that if we're losing all these people from the game, we're never going to, you know, that progress is going to be slower and slower. We could get stuck in this this state. Yeah, 100%. There's always that. Yeah, I think there's definitely that, that worry. You have girls who unfortunately won't be able to continue on to play because the demands are getting a little little bit higher. And um, to their credit, a lot of workplaces do, 
you know, allow a certain level of flexibility, but then there's a lot of workplaces that that don't. Um, and unfortunately, some of the women don't don't have those options moving forward. So um, have to unfortunately call time or uh, walk away from the game, even for a small period of time. But mm. you know, and uh, it's it's crazy because you know you think, oh, if the if there was the remuneration or if there was that ability to live that you know live that life of a of an athlete 24/7 365 days a week you know then oh, maybe those maybe those other factors would just you know would not disappear but you know you still have family you still have all those different things and many hats that lots of women wear but the financial side of things and the the commitment to training plus work plus everything else at least that'll that would be um, a factor that wouldn't be a problem was the finance and the work um but even uh, even example, I was uh, hurt my leg last year, and you know you're on the phone to the the radiologist, you're on the phone to the doctor trying to get appointments for different things. You're calling work because you're going to have to take leave off. You know you're trying to navigate six different uh, people at once to try and get things sorted. Then you're trying to plan your rehab, and you're already on a work trip, so you you've got that to fret about in the meantime. Um, whereas you know if you're a, if you're a professional athlete. You, you make one phone call and, you know, which is to, and your coach knows and then, you know, the medical, everyone knows the same, the same information at the same time. Um, whereas, yeah, even the stress of just organising things can be a lot for, for some of the women, unfortunately. It's a lot, yeah. The Maroons um, brought in the QRL, they brought in equal pay for their state of origin players for male and female. So currently the male players get $15,000 a game and now the female players for the first time will get $15,000 a game, which is fantastic to see them leading the way and I really have to give them a plug for that. Previously, it was 3000 I think, that you guys got paid before. So now a big jump to be equal and sets a new standard and benchmark for women's sports and in particular women's rugby league. What else do you want to see for the future of women's rugby league? What's your dream, your hope, Talisha? Oh, my dream would be, yeah, 16 team competition, um, junior pathways right up to NRLW, three game origin series, regular test matches and just seeing what the girls who did sacrifice all those years ago, seeing it come full cycle and, you know, having young girls play from six right until into their thirties with a full pathway, not that dissimilar to what the, what the men and the boys go through. That would be, that would be amazing. Um, can I, we've talked about it throughout like your studies and your speech pathology and what inspired you, but can you just tell me just a bit about the work that you do? Because you work in your community, you work for young kids like you were, um, that are having hearing difficulties. How validating and how inspiring do you find, how passionate are you about, about the work that you do? Oh, I love it. Um, I'm really, really proud to be a speech pathologist. Um, for me, it's, you know, communication is central to everything that we do, whether that communication be verbal, nonverbal, whether it be through storytelling, pictures, whatever it is, it's such an integral part of who we are as, as people. Um, and for myself working in community with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, families, elders, whoever it might be, to be able to help and be a part of that journey, even just for if it's for a small period of time or if it's for a little bit longer, it's such a privilege to be able to help someone communicate um, the way that they want to, to be able to achieve the goals that are important for them. And I think that's something I've really learned is that, you know, things that are important to me communication-wise are not as important to other people. Each person has their own unique way of communicating their own goals for themselves, the way that their families communicate, the way that they want to communicate. So for me, I love that I get to provide, I guess, person-centred care. What that person wants is uh, what I'll help them work towards achieving. So I love being able to do that and to do that in community. Well... Um, in each episode of On Her Game, we get someone close to our guests to record a little voice memo and you are having a huge impact both on the field um, and also in your community, which I love. Um, and you talked before about 
that incredible friendship that you have with Taliqua Clancy, the Australian silver medalist. Um, and we got in touch with, with Taliqua and, and Nasa and you two are still best mates to this day from when you were 12. So we asked Taliqua if she could record a voice memo for you. Talisha, my brother from another mother, it's been so special to be able to witness your journey and to share in some of the moments of your journey to the woman that you've become today. You're the hardest worker that I know by far and no matter what comes your way, injury or adversity off the field, you just handle it with such grace and always so compassionate for others. Your heart is just so beautiful. And because of that, you become this incredible leader for our community and our people, which has just been incredible to watch. And it's, I love sitting here as your best friend and seeing that you're getting everything that you deserve. And you're just so inspiring for everyone who comes around you. They feel that light that you have. So. I hope you know how incredible you are and you know that my family and I just absolutely love and adore you and just can't wait to see what else you would do in the future. You just inspire so many of us around you. When we teamed up to play National Juniors together and I think this just shows like the person that you are, everybody doubted us and didn't want us to do well and didn't want us to win but we just laughed it off and we just stayed super positive and and we ended up winning the tournament and it was just you know we we knew what we could do we knew what we could achieve we didn't have to worry about anybody else believing in us and and that's the strength that you have and and we went out there and we won national juniors and also too I think we can easily say the greatest part to and another great story was us on the weekend trying to build your flat pack. That was a a really fun story and a great memory for who you are and our friendship that I love so much. So love you. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's so cool. Thanks, T. Love ya. <laughs> wow. Can oh. win silver medals. Can represent Australia. Can't build a flat pack. Can't build a flat pack. Can't build a flat pack. Mind you. It became even more relatable to so many people out there. Yeah. T, I don't know if anyone's... T, she literally ate Zambreros while I was building this... this little flat pack thing. It, yeah, it was awesome. No. Oh, thanks, T. That's that's awesome, Sam. That gave me a bit of, I'm going to go cry outside now. That was awesome. That's so good. It's all the feels, all the feels. Um, and I love when we identify links. You know, I didn't realise that with you and Talika and two incredible women. Um, I didn't realise the deepness of that, that friendship that, that you both have. You went over to Rio to watch her make her Olympic debut as well. Um, I think that's really, really special and a great message about powerful women and women supporting women as well, which I love. Um, well, to finish off every podcast, we ask our guests if they could go back and tell their little self, like little Talisha, a message, what would you tell that gangly brass playing, book nerd, which I love in a great way, little girl with so much ahead of her. What would you go back? What would be the message? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I'd probably tell her just to, maybe just to trust trust her own timeline. People expect you to do things at a certain time, be things at a certain time, achieve things at a certain time. Um, but that's not life. Like life doesn't happen according to plan. Um, so just to trust, trust our own timeline and, you know, be okay with doing things in your own time because you'll turn out to be an okay person, I reckon. So yeah, definitely. Because I think I, I did, I got caught up in what other people were doing and what they were achieving and, you know, I should be there or doing this. So, but everything's worked out um, pretty well for me. I've got yeah. I'd say so. Most definitely. What an incredible journey you've been on so far. I just, I mean, awe of everything that you've achieved. You're an incredible athlete, incredible woman, 
But more importantly, you're an incredible leader as well, Talisha. And I can't thank you enough for joining me here on On Her Game and, and sharing your story here. It's just been, yeah, it's been wonderful, babe. Thanks so much, Sam. And um, there's, I just thought about it. Actually, there's probably three people who I need to acknowledge as well. Um, if they're if they're listening, I don't know if they would be, but uh, Cheyenne Campbell, Saxon Campbell, and Kirby Sefo, who, um, you know, during that really, oh, took me to the end to cry, but um, uh, during that tough period with mum, um, really stepped in and helped me. Um, so those three in particular, they already know, but. Um, if they're listening, they were pretty amazing friends and people to have when I was going through all that stuff with with mum. So, yeah, thank you. Sorry, Sam. Bloody got me. Don't got apologize, me right at, the end. at all. Oh. At all. It's understandable. They played a big role. Huge role. I can cook because of because of them, and you know, I can. Yeah, I wouldn't. I would have quit sport, quit uni without those three. So, yeah, definitely those three. As well. You're not a critter though, are you? No, definitely not. Talisha, I've loved having you on. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sam. Thank you so much. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Nikki Sitch, executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. 